or yeah. So. Thank you, David. Good morning. I don't know if you've noticed, but our long and uh, frustrating process with our uh, exits for our parking lot has slowly yet surely been winding up. We now, hold your applause, have three entrances slash exits to our parking lot uh, after only having one for the last couple of weeks. Uh, it may not affect you a whole lot, but for me, Coming to the building most weeks, you know, I've always had like, Kyle and I joke about like needing our own parking spots with our signs that say like ministers and you know, uh, I've got a parking spot. It's always in the same spot and I haven't been able to park there for weeks and it's really put a crimp on my style. So uh, I'm, I'm excited that they're wrapping this up because for another reason, it means that most of this is basically done at this point. There are a handful of things that need to be worked on, uh, but for us, it, it doesn't impact us nearly as much as it has, and very soon, we're going to have our entire back lot open, and so um, I think that's all worthy of our, our celebration. Um, as I was thinking about the, the whole situation with the city and us, you know, giving them property for a little while and, uh, you know, renting it out to them and all of the, the negotiation that happens there, you know, I, I was thinking also about the ways in which the Israelite people had this land that they were looking forward to having, possessing, and realizing there were other people there. There were, there were occupants, residents, that were going to, in some way, shape, or form, make it difficult for them uh, to take up the land that God had intended for them. Although the interesting thing about it is that God emphasizes over and over and over again to the Israelite people that they're really not going to be a problem. That God is going to take care of the situation. And as we read through it, you know, most of the time we come across these stories that we tell to our children, right? Uh, the stories of the conquest of Canaan and, and Joshua, the, the mighty leader of God's people, and uh, you know, how they go in there and God gives them absolute victory over all of these tribes. And we kind of tell the stories in ways that we avoid maybe the more disturbing parts. As we get older and we encounter the book of Deuteronomy and we encounter the book of Joshua and we especially encounter the book of Judges, we begin to realize that a lot of these stories are very dark, very gruesome, especially the book of Judges. If you don't believe me, now children don't do this, but adults, go read the last chapter of the book of Judges and tell me that it's not a little disturbing. The Bible doesn't shy away from things that are difficult for us to process. In fact, the Bible oftentimes embraces the reality that our world is a dark and often gruesome place. And when we read the book of Deuteronomy, it's, it's not an exception. God openly acknowledges that there are people that possess the land that the Israelite people are about to enter into. But he also acknowledges that the people that are about to enter into the land are his chosen people. This is something that we've all kind of come to, to think a lot more on over the last couple of years. There's the series, The Chosen Out, and occasionally, you know, it, of course, it's the story of the life of Jesus and the disciples, but there are these flashbacks to the Israelite people in ancient times, the times of Moses, the times of David, the times of Abraham, the patriarchs through the kings, and there's a lot of little insight into what it meant to be the chosen people of God. 
And in Deuteronomy, Moses is continually reminding the people that they are, in fact, chosen. That God has picked them. That they are a group of people that God wants for himself. That can kind of give you a little bit of an ego boost, right? You know, God picked me, the Lord of all creation, Yahweh, the one that is like no other, singular, among all that might exist. The Israelite people very much believed that there were other spiritual beings, and they believed that the nations around them worshipped these false gods that were also spiritual beings. But Israel alone was chosen by the Creator God, Yahweh God, the one who had spun into existence all of creation by his own words. Again, that might give you a little bit of an ego trip. We are the chosen ones. And of course, God gives them a lot of reason through the words of Moses to feel very good about themselves. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We all really like that. I don't know if you've, you know, you get these like quilted pillows with like needlepoint uh, verses on them and wall hangings and things like that that say these beautiful, wonderful things. This is like a needlepoint pillow verse, right? Know that the Lord your God is God. To a thousand generations, he's going to keep his, his love for them, right? These are, these are beautiful, kind, sweet words, and we really like them. And a lot of times we cut them out from the very thing that comes next. Because the next thing that God says, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. Not a lot of needlepoint pillows have that particular part of the verse on there, right? We don't like putting God's words about his enemies onto our like merchandise, our memorabilia, right? Nobody's hanging this on a picture of a lighthouse. But this is the reality of Scripture. There are things in there that either we take the whole or we take none. And so we have to wrestle with what it means for God to to hate a group of people. What does it mean for God to repay face to face those whom he hates? So we encounter these two terms in the book of Deuteronomy and really in most of the Old Testament. They are harem and kadush. Okay, harem. Uh, This might sound a little bit like harem. It is not that. It is a word that means specifically those that are under the ban. Those that are set apart, not for positive reasons, but for destruction or for isolation or to be cut off. And then there are the Kadesh, those who are sanctified, those who are chosen, those who are set apart, but for the pleasure of God. There are two groups of people that have been destined for something specific in relationship to the God that has created them. And these are difficult terms for us to wrap our minds around, but they're highly interlinked. Everywhere that you look in Scripture, for there to be a Kadesh, there also has to be a Harem. You can't have one without the other. 
Sometimes we want to have one without the other, though. We really like the idea of there being a chosen group of people that God has shown mercy and favor and everlasting kindness to. We don't so much like the idea that there is a group of people that perhaps have been set aside for destruction, that have been labeled as cut off, set apart to be forgotten. God makes a promise to the Israelite people that for a thousand generations, those who have been faithful will continue to receive the everlasting, steadfast love of God. And then there's this group of people over here that will just be cut off. And I want us to sit with the tension of that for just a little while. I don't think that this conflicts with our understanding of who God is. We believe that God is love. We believe that God desires for none, none to be lost. But God is also a God of justice. God is a God of justice and a God of mercy, and both of these qualities have to exist within the same God. They are, they are qualities that are essential to his character, to our understanding of him. And Moses is going to make it very clear over the next several chapters of the book of Deuteronomy that there is a way in which we might participate in the righteousness of God by obeying his commands out of our love for him, out of a relationship that we've built with him, out of a desire to grow in that relationship with him, and there's a way to participate in his justice in another direction. To be an example of what happens when we reject the righteousness, loving kindness, and steadfastness of God. Because both of these are a choice. See, the Israelite people are going to run into a lot of different tribes in the Promised Land. They're going to have some very interesting names, but the ones that I think are most interesting kind of harken back to the book of Genesis, to chapter 6. There's this moment where uh, it's, it's being described that the sons of God have married with the daughters of men and that they've had children who are the great uh, heroes of old, the, the men of renown, giants. There's a phrase thrown in there called the Nephilim, they're the sons of the Nephim. The, it's, it's, it's a weird word. Anytime that you get em at the end, what you're looking at is someone who has descended, the kin of this individual. And the first group of people that do, Moses is going to talk about in Deuteronomy that are going to be placed under the ban, those who are going to be harem, are the Anakim. They're these individuals who are the descendants of Anak, and they, they say that these are the ones that are the standards for the giants. If you want to know what a giant is like, the Anakim are it. You can go and look at the book of Numbers where it really outlines these groups of people that are all kind of interrelated, the Nephilim, the Anakim, uh, the Rephaim, these, these Eames that are all in some way, shape, or form a little different than the kinds of tribes that we're going to face under the kings. See, because there are other people in the land, too. There are the Philistines. See, they're going to become, especially in the book of Judges, this group of people that are just a constant and regular annoyance to the Israelite people. When you get to David, David's going to be responsible largely for driving out the Philistines. These are, 
as far as we can tell, mostly pretty normal, regular people, and a giant like Goliath is the exception to the rule. Maybe he's not even really a Philistine. Maybe he's one of the recruits from another nation. You know, at one point, David goes, and he's a recruit for another nation. It's not uncommon to see mercenaries in the Old Testament. But these Kims, these Eims, the Anakim, the Rephaim, the Nephilim, they're all considered harem. They're groups of people that are to be cut off entirely. Now, as far as the Israelite people were concerned, these groups of people had done dark things. They had participated in worship of demonic beings. In worshiping these demonic beings, they had decided that it was appropriate, not just appropriate, but maybe even necessary to offer their children in the fire to gods like Molech. Human sacrifice, but not just human sacrifice, not taking our enemies that we've just conquered and to please our God, we're going to to offer their soldiers on the fire. Rather than have them die on the battlefield, we'll take them captive and kill them in our own cities, which might be horrifying enough, but our own children will be offered as sacrifices to these dark deities, these nefarious demonic beings. There's a link being drawn here between the times before the flood and the times before the Israelites enter into the promised land. See, before the flood, it says that the inclination of man's heart was only evil always. That there was a rejection of God to the absolute, to the extreme. That everything that they did, every word that they spoke, every proclivity of their heart was darkness, evil. And the only solution for it in God's, God's eyes, in his righteous judgment, was to begin again. But this was the land that he had just declared good at the beginning of the book of Genesis. This was a good land. This was what he intended for it to be. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. But it had broken over time. Things had gone poorly. Things were not looking so good. In fact, darkness had become so prevalent that the only option was to wash it clean with a flood and start over with Noah and his sons. And so God does. And in many ways, the book of Deuteronomy is this mirror reflection of the book of Genesis. As you, as you may have remembered on our graduate Sunday, one of the things we talked about is that God encourages, through the words of Moses, the Israelite people to look before them and see that presented to them was death and life, the bad and the good, the evil and the good, the tov, tov, and the ra. Those are the same words that apply to the tree in the Garden of Eden. And so we're, we're seeing here that what God intends for the Israelite people now is to go into the good land that he is offering them, to recognize that there is evil in that land, and not to eat from that fruit. To avoid it altogether. In fact, maybe to make it harem to themselves. There is stuff going on in there that could cause the goodness of this land to be spoiled. I have chosen you, and I am asking yourselves to consider the evil harem. Keep it away from you. 
So these are the words then of Moses to the Israelite people, the words of God, in fact, to the Israelite people. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Now, remember, these are giants, right? This is the whole reason that they haven't gone in for the last 40 years, is that a group of spies went in and said, it is a good land, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but you know what? There's a little bit of raw in there, some bad. There's some giants, and we don't think we can face them. And now Moses is saying, don't make the same mistake now. Don't ask yourselves, how can we fight the giants? The Anakim are there. The Rephaim are there. The Nephilim are there. How can we fight them? He says, don't worry about that. You are my chosen people. I will take care of you. The way that I did when you were in Egypt. Moreover, and I love this, the Lord your God will send hornets among them, until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. I don't, I don't know if you are like me or not. I'd imagine you are. I don't like hornets in the first place, and if I were to be hiding in a place and hornets happened to be there with me, it would drive me out. There's no question about it. Uh, we were out at camp a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were out on the deck, and one of the planters for plants, there was a crack in it, and some hornets had built their nest down inside, and we started seeing them. Now, they weren't bothering the kids just yet, but they were like, as we're sitting out there on the deck, they're like mounting up for an attack, like lining up on the rim of the, the planter. And Robin King, who is one of the sweetest people I've ever known, when I told her that, uh, that there were hornets, she got this big, huge smile on her face, and she and Scott had like an extended argument about which one of them were going to get to come out and kill the hornets. And they came out with like the, I'm, I, it's like an industrial sized can of raid, right? And they're out there like spraying it into and like just overjoyed at it. Hornets are a terrifying thing, and it's not anything new to us that hornets are a terrifying thing. And so God has said, you know what? Think of the worst thing I could possibly send in to drive them out. Even if you don't finish the job, I will. You don't have to argue about which one of us is going to hold the raid can for the Anakim. I, the God of justice, will take care of them. I know their iniquities. In fact, earlier in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, there's this moment in which uh, the, the Israelite people are told specifically, I'm not going to send you into the land yet because... Some of the people that are there have not reached their maximum wickedness yet. I'm not quite ready to deal with them at this point, but don't worry, my justice will come. God delays sending the Israelite people into the land so that he can execute his justice on those who have chosen to make themselves harem to him. Paul, in the book of Romans, begins his argument about the depravity of humanity by essentially saying everyone knows that there is a God. But the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He gives himself over to these, these ways of being. Uh, Paul doesn't use the fools. as have, had, He says their foolish hearts were darkened. 
and they were given over to evil, right? They've denied him by their works, by their actions, by their activities. And as a result of that, what ends up happening is that they make themselves separate from him, that in their participation in the things that they have decided to do as a way of choosing not to acknowledge the existence of God, they have cut themselves off from him. Gentiles, certainly, but everyone, through their actions, has chosen to become harem to God, devoted to destruction. And they take into themselves the iniquities of their own actions. Paul, Paul is a pretty smart guy. He knows that when he reads the Old Testament that God is not simply saying, you know what, I decided a long time ago that these people were just going to be depraved, and my decision for them was that they had no choice but to be depraved. No, instead he recognized these people will choose for themselves to be depraved, to live in unrighteous ways. And then you say, but, but then he chose the Israelite people, so he chose them to be righteous, right? Interestingly, that's not what Moses says. Moses doesn't say, God chose you and you will be righteous because of it. Now, God's righteousness will be counted to the Israelite people because of his remarkable laws, his statutes, his commands that he's given them, his nearness to them. People will marvel at that. But they were not righteous when God chose them. And they would certainly not choose to be righteous on a continual and regular basis. Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. And if we'd stopped right there, it's like, great, God has promised us victory. And he says, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Now hold on a second. God is not giving the land to the Israelite people because they're a glorious pillar of you know, exemplary living? That's just shocking, right? I mean, like, to be fair now, if you've read the rest of the first five books of the, New Te uh, the Old Testament, uh, you shouldn't be surprised by that, because the first thing that they do after they reach Sinai, and God has, you know, begun the process of, like, courting them and giving them the opportunity to understand the relationship that he desires with them, a relationship which we discussed last week, they rejected in some ways, is build an altar to a foreign god, breaking, like, a dozen of the laws of Israel that are going to exist, but certainly some of the first commandments that God gives to them. God knows he's not dealing with people who are especially righteous. God knows he's dealing with people who are going to fail. But because they are the chosen people, there is a temptation for them to think, ah, it's because we're so righteous that he's given us this land. He says, no, <laughs> you, are, you are not righteous. You're just not that wicked. There's a pretty big distinction there, right? Righteousness and just not that wicked, like on a spectrum of things. I'd rather be righteous. I'd rather be significantly righteous. If, if your parents describe you as not that wicked, 
then maybe you're the problem child, right? God's relationship with Israel is not founded on their righteousness. They've just more or less continued to acknowledge that God exists, which at at least leaves them open to the participation in his righteousness. They haven't wholesale rejected him just yet. Now, there's going to come a time at which the Israelite people will more or less wholesale reject the God who has provided them release from bondage, a land to live in, security for themselves and their children, and they will marry themselves to foreign gods. But right now, in this moment, these not-that-wicked people have chosen to acknowledge God and have the ability to walk in his righteousness. If we look just a little further here, God reminds the Israelite people again, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. When the story is told in all, God chooses for himself a people that are open to him, but oftentimes stubbornly defiant. Now we're going to think here for just a second, if you jump ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 20, and I think, it's, I think it's verse 16, I don't have a slide for this, but I think it's verse 16. God then outlines the other people who will be placed under the ban, and depending on your translation, it's going to say total destruction, it might say the ban, it might say anathema, it might say set apart or devoted, Or it might even say devoted to destruction. And he says, all of these I am commanding you to set apart for harem. When you go and you read the book of Joshua, the people encounter these tribes. And in Joshua, it's more or less described that they successfully do the things that God asked them to do. They place them under the ban. But there's another command that's given to the Israelite people. Don't intermarry with them. Don't make treaties with them. Don't take their daughters for your sons or your sons for their daughters. You know, don't, don't have a relationship with them. Devote them to be set apart. Now here's the question I have for you. If they're supposed to be completely destroyed, annihilated, men, women, and children, and all, why the additional commandment not to intermarry with them? I'm not trying to minimize the fact that God does in fact call for the destruction of several groups of people within the promised land. I want to be absolutely clear. We read in Joshua moments at which an entire group of people are removed from the promised land. And I think that's just because God is just. But some of these groups of people that the Israelite people are told not to intermarry with, not to make treaties with, not to rely on, not to worship their gods, not to take anything from them, not to make trades with them, pop up again in the book of the Kings. They pop up again in the timeline of David. They actually become problematic during the times before the exile. They, they are 
kind of a constant lingering nuisance among the Israelite people. But sometimes, sometimes, these people actually extend beyond Harem, and they themselves become the Kadush. They become righteous individuals that work alongside the Israelite people. Some of them are even generals within the army of David. I think that's a sign of the mercy of God. And the recognition that it was not just those who were Israel who were chosen. Now, they were set apart for a specific purpose. They were Kadush. But God had a greater plan and purpose than just one nation of people being the chosen ones. And in fact, as we've read Galatians this summer, there's a moment in which uh, Paul encourages us to understand what the promise of God to the Israelite people was. Paul doesn't go to the second promise to Abraham. He doesn't go to a promise that's made at the foot of Mount Sinai. He doesn't go to a promise that's made in the book of Deuteronomy. What he does is he goes back to the very first promise that God makes to Abraham, where he says, by you, all nations will be blessed. And Paul says in Galatians, this is the promise that we've inherited. Sometimes I think as Christians, because we say we're the chosen ones participating in the promise that God has made to Abraham, that means that God is going to give us a mortal victory over our enemies, and they will be struck down, and we should maybe participate in making that happen, that it's our job to make sure that the Rephaim and the Anakim and the Nephilim of today get cut off at the knees and meet their justice at the tip of our sword. That's not the promise that Paul says, I believe God says, we participate in. I think it's a unique moment in the history of Israel where God uses the opportunity to show justice towards those who have participated in demonic things played out by a chosen people who participate in his righteousness at least for a time so we might understand the justice of God. But if we lean too hard into the justice of God for ourselves, because God constantly tells us that he is the judge, we will miss the promise that we've been offered to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Can we walk in the righteousness of God? Can we be Kadush? to God, set apart, sanctified, and dwell among those who have made themselves harem. I think the larger story of the Old Testament is that there are those who are harem who move to be more like the Kaddish. And our job is to dwell among them in a way that allows them to approach the righteousness of God. Not because we are particularly righteous, but because the God we serve is righteous. This morning, I, I, I don't have like a neat, tidy little bow to place on this because we're literally in the middle of a sermon from the book of Deuteronomy. But I want us to contemplate this week what it means 
for us to be chosen and what it means for someone to have made themselves harem. Because I don't think God makes people harem. God doesn't cut people off from himself. I think people make the choice to be cut off from God. And it's possible sometimes when we think too highly of ourselves that we become the reason they choose to do so. When we recognize that it is the God that we serve that makes us righteous and not us who makes us righteous, any of our failings don't push back against God. But the moment that we claim righteousness comes from us, that we're high and mighty, that we are chosen, we fail to serve anyone in their understanding of the relationship that God desires to have with them. This week, I'd ask you to choose to be chosen, and as you encounter people who have made themselves harem, cut off, invite them into the walk of the chosen. Whatever that looks like for you is up to you. What, whatever that looks like in your relationship with your neighbor, your coworker, your children, your family members, that's for you to determine. But remember that the righteousness that you experience in your life is a participation in the nature of God, and it is not derived from some greatness of our own. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, to participate with Jesus in the promise that he inherited through Abraham, to participate with Jesus in the restoration of relationship between God and man, to be ministers of reconciliation. Our Father in heaven, we want to be like you, seekers of mercy and acknowledgers of justice. But God, we want to leave the justice up to you. Help us to be merciful. Help us to be patient. Help us to be kind to those who have cut themselves off from you and help us to show them the ways in which you desire to graft them back in. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if there are ways we can bless you or serve you, if you are feeling a little cut off and you want to be enmeshed with the Creator, we, we believe that we know how that happens. We believe it's through the participation in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. And so if you are interested in pursuing that this morning, we'd invite you to join us. Uh, I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. You can meet me back there. Our elders are here this morning. They'd be happy to pray with you. We have some ladies here as well that would be happy to visit with you as well if you uh, would prefer that. And so I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing.